So we're going to be in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. Nate? Yeah, the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Okay, great. You guys can be seated. Um, so, Paul, right from the get-go, um, in verses 1 through 2, talks about this idea, walking in love. That's the whole premises of the first two verses. And he starts with the word uh, therefore, right? Um, in the NLT, we'll see it, it says imitate God, and then it says therefore. But all that said, what he's trying to do, Paul concludes a thought from Ephesians 4, where he described how Christians should relate to one another. Right? Ephesians 4.32 tells Christians to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, just as God through Christ forgives us. And so he's just finishing. A lot of times... We get our Bibles in like this chapter by chapter, but when, when it was written, you wouldn't have had like these little headings. Paul didn't write in there chapter 5, right? Or not chapter 5, but you know what I mean? And so he didn't write that stuff in there. It would have just been one manuscript. And most likely, a big run-on sentence. He would have just continued to write, continued to write until his thoughts were done, and then hand them off, and it would go as a letter to the church in Ephesus. And so... You know, over time, as people started to gather the scriptures, they would break things out kind of by thoughts, the same way we do now, right, with paragraphs and chapters and stuff. And so he ends this, he um, carries this idea over from, from chapter four into chapter five um, about that Christians should be forgiving just as God forgives us. And then he says, imitate God. Imitate God. So I'm going to ask a question to start off. What do you think it means to imitate God? To love? to love one another. Yeah, to love one another. What else? Study his word. Study his word. So it's like a child. When a child imitates someone, they're doing the action. Yeah. So you would want to do what God, God's actions would be. That's what the actions you want to be doing. Yeah, exactly right. And, and the cool thing is, 
God became flesh to demonstrate what it is to live a holy life, right? And, and so we get that example through Jesus Christ. And so to be imitators, we're to make God our example and model that we should never be content comparing ourselves to others. This is something I feel like even as Christians, Christians are really bad for whatever reason of comparing ourselves to other Christians. To say, well, I, you know what? My sin's not as bad as that. So, you know, I'm, I'm okay. But the reality is it all is bad, right? It all goes against God. And so we're supposed to be imitators. We should never be content comparing ourselves to others. And our example to be holy comes from God. He's the standard. There is no other standard, right? I don't look to some other um, giant in the faith and say, here's my standard, right? I don't even look to uh, the, the disciples and say, these are my standards. Because the disciples looked to who? To Jesus, right? They didn't look to, um, to themselves or to each other as friends. They said, Jesus is the, is the standard. He's the one we want to look like. So Paul writes this and says, be imitators of God. So let me ask a question. Do you ever find yourself comparing uh, yourself to other Christians? Right? And if nobody says yes, because I, I, like, I'm guilty of it. Like, it's so easy to look at somebody else and say, man, or, you know, or whatever. And so it's important, though, that we don't do that. When, when I look at my life and I do an inward reflection, I should look to Jesus and say, this is the standard. He's the one that I want to live like, not another Christian. Because all Christians, we all, so Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus is the standard. So this is what Paul's saying. He said, be imitators of God. Someone want to read 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 for me real quick. You can do whatever version. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Yeah. Yeah, we must be holy because God is holy. That's the call for our lives, to be holy. We'll never be holy, right? In the sense of, as Christians, we, can, we, we long for perfection, long to look like Jesus, but still know that we are sinners. And yet, though, there will be a day where we will sin no more. Right? When Jesus returns and we get to live in that, that glorious place with God, we will no longer uh, you know, sin and we will no longer feel pain or troubles or anything. And that's beautiful. But I want you to notice something. Paul isn't saying think about God or admire God or adore God in this verse. Though I think those are important as, as, as Christians that we do those. But the call is, is a practical action, right? It's going beyond our inner life with God. In fact, it, it, it really is an extension of Ephesians 4.13 regarding the extent of Christian growth. That measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This is what we strive for. Paul loves to just give us this, like, go after this. Draw near to God. Chase after the things of God. Look like God. It changes your life. That's why Paul over and over again said, this 
is what will change your life. This is how you become holy, right? Um, so he goes on, God's behavior towards us becomes our measure for our behavior towards one another. So God loves us. And then the, the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love one another. When we experience the love of God, when we really sit in his presence, we want to give that love to other people. It, it just it overflows out of who we are as believers. And then he goes on and he says, you are his dear children. And I love it. Children are indeed natural imitators. Right? Like, go to youth right now. A lot of kids reflect whatever they've had at school, the people they're surrounded by. Kids are really moldable. They reflect what their parents do at home. They reflect, you know, and so they're, they're imitators of their parents, of some of their peers, more so than adults are. Right? Praise the Lord for that, because if, if adults were always just imitating other people, we'd be in trouble. Uh, but they, children are natural imitators, often doing what they see their parents or other adults do. So when we act according to our nature as children of God, what, we will naturally imitate him, because we are children. To have childlike faith, we all know uh, we are all around kids and how important it is. That we live a life in such a way that those kids see us looking like Christ. You may be the only one sometimes. I know there are parents that come and they drop their kids off at youth. They don't go to church, right? It's just an escape for their parents or whatever. And so you may be the only one that maybe they, these kids start to look at and say, man, something's different about you. And not just kids, but other people. People can see it in the workplace and say, well, man, something is different about you. And it's because you, to the best of your ability, are trying to be an imitator of God, to, to know him and to show his love to others. So as we imitate God, we become representatives of God, especially before those who have shut out God in their lives. You're, you're going to be the person that, that may be the one that gets someone back into the church or that gets someone to just explore Christianity. Give me a small conversation with you. This is why it's so important though, that we stop, right? That we stop and we talk to people. You know, we are, busyness is like, it's bad, right? You go to Walmart and you say, hey, how you doing to someone? You say good, you say good as you walk on by. No more do we just stop and have conversations. But our model, Jesus, he would have stopped and had conversations with whoever. All the time, right? The disciples did the same. And so as we imitate him, it's to, to stop and have those conversations, to say, you know, I, I am wanting to be like God. And so you're doing these things um, for the benefit, not of just yourself, but of others as well. So how many of us um, in here have loved ones who don't know God? Probably all of us, some, you know. Um, one of the greatest things you can do besides prayer is be imitators. When you go to family gatherings, Thanksgiving's coming up. Some of y'all know that can be chaos, right? Um, when you sit around the, the dinner table and you got half a group of Republicans and half a group of Democrats, it's chaos, right? Or whatever. And, and so how, how, it's important, though, that 
when you go and you're talking to your, your brother, your sister, your mom, dad, whoever it is that doesn't know God, one of the ways that you show who God is is by imitating him. So when you go to that family gathering, right, it's, it's looking like Jesus. What would have Jesus have done? Right? He, would have, he would have shown love, shown grace, shown mercy. For those people to really see that you have the living God inside of you. And so verse 2 goes on. He says, live life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and he offered himself as a sacrifice to us, a pleasing aroma to God. What does it mean to live a life of love? Anybody? Love's such a uh, hard word, I think, sometimes to define. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of it. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Joyful. Joyful. Yeah, I remember when my wife and I went through uh, premarital counseling, one of the greatest things of advice I got is marriage is a submission competition. It's just being selfless all the time. That's what makes a marriage work. It's not a marriage class, but anyway... (laughs) You guys, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's self-giving love. To love others selflessly is what Paul is trying to get at, to follow Christ's example. The, the most selfless person in the world went to the cross, died. And so Paul's saying to love with that kind of love, that, that he offered himself as a sacrifice, that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. We can also offer a pleasing sacrifice a pleasing, or as some translations say, a sweet aroma when you read the scripture. As we give ourselves in love to others, what it is to say, I'm going to put somebody else above me, to put somebody else first, is what Paul is saying, that this is the Christian way. I think a lot of times it's what separates Christianity from other religions, other than the fact that there's one true God, and we know all that, but the selflessness that other people are first. Jesus did that. The disciples did that. To the extent where, realistically, Jesus and they were homeless. Like, they were so selfless. Like, they, they didn't care about their own lives, right? We could, we could see that by the fact that all of them were pretty much martyred. And so, anyway, here we go. It, little by little, little by little, you can show love. It doesn't have to always be dramatic or something big. So Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he says, Paul gives us a contrast to walking in love because he talks about conduct that's not fitting for Christians. There are things that we should not partake in as believers. And so why do you think Paul contrasts walking in love with the list of sins that he lists out in uh, verses 3 and 4? Anybody have a guess? I get a crazy Paul goes, and I walk in love, and then he's like, don't walk in these things. And it, was, and it was a pretty drastic shift. Why do you think he does that? It's a little bit of a tougher question, so. It's like he's putting a mirror in front of him. Yeah. Show him this isn't what Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, he, he's really just, it's like the extreme, but 
This is where, when you read scripture, how important context is. If you don't have context, what Paul's doing here just looks like, man, he, he really, like the sexual stuff, either he really struggled with it, or I don't know why he put it in here. But he puts it in here because of context, because what's happening in the church here was bad, um, right? And it, I say that what's happening today is bad. It's, it's not like it's different per se. Now, it's different in that we see some other weird things happening. But sexual sin has always been. And it will always be until Jesus comes back. But Paul says as, as believers that we shouldn't walk in these. There, there's activities and behaviors and practices that are common for many people, but completely unacceptable and improper among saints, among God's children. And Paul used a comprehensive list of sexual sin. Would someone read Hebrews 13.4 for me real fast? The word undefiled in the Greek means to be completely untainted and from all corruption. It's literally describing marriage as a place that should never be tainted or corrupted. And God designed human sexuality and he defined it from the beginning of creation. There's no arguing what he does in scripture. We can try and, and push it away and say, well, this is that and this is that. But the reality is, as believers, we're called to something different. We're called to something different. We must notice the theme of, of moral appeal. It isn't, Paul's not saying, it's not avoid these things so that, that you can be God's child or saint, as some translations would say it. Rather, it is you are God's child now. If you are God's child now, live in a manner fitting for the child of God. Paul isn't like giving us a list to say, just, just avoid these things, right? And he's saying, you are a child of God, so you must avoid these things. The constant moral appeal in the New Testament and in Paul's writing is simply this, be who you are in Jesus. Right? It's different. It's countercultural from the world. The, the world says, just be who you are. Be who you want to be. Love who you want to love. All of these things. And Paul is saying, hold on, wait a second. Be who you are in Jesus. That's the, different, the difference for believers. That we are different. We're set apart. We're in Christ. The emphasis on sexual sin here was appropriate because the culture of Paul's day, especially in Ephesus, indulged in sexual morality. And he goes on in verse 4, he, he, provides, um, he provides these in a list because of their close association to sexual sin. So in verse 4, he goes and says, Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let be thankfulness to God. When you're thankful to God, these things can't even come in your mind. You ever tried to praise and, and curse at the same time? It's impossible. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, how do you praise God? And, well, actually, there's been a couple of worship songs. I want to talk about that. <laughs> we won't get into that because my blood gets blown. So, um, 
But you can't, when you're praising God, what's flowing out of your heart, it, you, you don't get to that, that spot. And so I think throughout the day, when it talks about praying fervently, it means to have conversation with Jesus throughout the day. Because when you're doing that, thoughts like this, these coarse jokes and things, where are they going to go? They can't, they can't fight God. And so Paul is saying these things shouldn't be with you as well. Now I lost some spot. So he finishes the verse um, saying, instead of these things, let there be thankfulness to God. Paul is saying, as, as Christians, we should receive the gift of sex thankfully and that it glorifies God. His purpose in God's purpose in giving sex is not primarily for the gratification of an individual, but for the bonding together of a husband and a wife in one in a one flesh relationship. So certain expressions of sexuality are sin. Not because, because God wants to hold or deprive his people of anything, but because they work against his primary purpose, what God laid out for us in Scripture. Paul goes on in verses 5 through 7, he talks about the consequences. This is something I actually uh, reached out to Pastor Tom, I think, about some of this, and just was, it was challenging to me because he goes on and Anytime I see scriptures say, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, I stop and ask a lot of questions. Because that's tough to struggle with, right? Like, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, that's, that's heavy. Because uh, I know, you know a lot of people that struggle with sexual sin. Right? And, so it, it, and so let's just tackle this for a second. He says, you can be sure no one will inherit the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. Let me ask a question. Why do you think Paul puts it here? What do you think Paul's saying? Yeah, no one wants to answer this because it's tough. <laughs> he wants, uh, God wants us to uh, have the safe sex because he wants us to have the safe sex for marriage and not uh, for, uh, just for anything. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Quick side note, heaven, um, by the way, here is described as a kingdom, which is frequently elsewhere in Scripture. Paul does it a lot as well. So just a side note if you want to have some fun. Um, it just respect to, to its glory, its fullness and sufficiency. I'd put that in here. I probably should. Um, here's the thing. This thought is not new. Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets with the same thing, uh, taught the same thing with strong conviction. Jeremiah 8, 7, and Ezekiel 13, 10. But at first glance, as, I, as you read the scripture, especially because we read things so literally, um, at first glance it would seem that Paul is implying that those who fall into such sins will lose their salvation. Right? That's, that's what it looks like on the, on the front. I mean, if you read that and you're going, well, if you're doing these things, heaven's not for you. But this single verse separates salvation from, for those who participate in such sins. Other passages certainly note Paul's view that nothing can separate the believer from God. So I want to talk about this because it's important sometimes to see how Paul writes in other books. Because Paul would write in Romans 8, 37-39 that nothing can separate the believer from God. I'm not going to go into once saved, always saved. That's a whole different theological conversation. Um, but what I want to say is, when you read this scripture, 
This one right here, it's important to always go back to context. Anytime you read the Bible, go back to context. Paul's intent in this verse isn't to condemn. Right? Paul understood that he could condemn no one, that that place only sits with God. Right? We, have, we do not have that power. And praise the Lord for that. Because you'd be condemning anybody that lied to you or made you mad. or you know, And so you, we don't have that power. Paul's intent isn't to condemn, but rather to make a distinction. This is where it's important. He wants to make a distinction between the lives of believers and unbelievers. Believers are supposed to live different. Instead of sexual sin and vulgar speech, believers are to exhibit pure lives with gratitude. If God's kingdom is alive in us, a transformation has occurred so that they cannot rest in habitual practices of these things. So really he's separating what's happening in the church of Ephesus here, that these people that are, that are, that are not just the church of Ephesus, but the, the city, everything, there's so much sexual sin that Paul says, if you're living like this, you're not, you're not in heaven. He wasn't condemning them. But saying, here's the difference. Here's how you can know here that there's a believer and there's a non-believer. Because the non-believers were practicing things that were not meant to be. And he said, here are the believers. If you're a believer, this is how you live. You're imitators of God. And so this isn't a condemning verse. And I say this, I want to point this out. Because there are people, right, who, who struggle with pornography or whatever. And if you read this verse at first glance... You're thinking, those people will just go to hell. Like, what happens when Jesus comes back and they're still struggling with pornography? Are they going to hell? Yet they're going to church and they're trying to break the habit. And we know how addictive habits can be. And so I wrestled with this, this verse. But when you understand it through the context that Paul isn't saying, I'm condemning these people. What I'm trying to do is tell you what should be as a believer and what shouldn't be as a non-believer. And so it's that separation. And so Paul really wants us to get back to this idea that we are to be imitators of God. And to be imitators of God is to cast this stuff off. This can no longer be. You can no longer live in sin. Though we will fall short. It cannot be. So that's clear as mud or what? <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I found that verse is fascinating because there's a lot of times I read something in Scripture and I'm like, Wow. This is, this is some, some struggling stuff. So, Paul does provide warning here, though. I think it's important that we list that, uh, that Paul does indeed provide warning. He's telling us that starting down the track of sexual immorality is entering into partnership with the world. Here's the thing. I, as believers, when we get into habitual sin, you get further and further away from God. And at some point, most likely, the further you get away from God, at some point you may just say, God, you know what? I don't need you anymore. This is a warning. Paul's saying you, you can't be in this stuff because it draws, it, 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 it builds this barrier between you and God. And you can't be imitators of God if you're going to be in these sins. And so there's a warning here, and it's, it's a stern warning. So verse 6 um, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. What do you think is being said here? 
you're just a religious talker and not a follower, so you're not an imitator. Yeah. So we can all talk a good religious talk, but where is our heart? Mm-hmm. It's like you were talking earlier. You know, we all have sin and we all struggle. There's a difference, though, because if you are truly a man after God's own heart, mm-hmm. you might struggle in that sin, but God knows your heart. Mm-hmm. And people will know you're different. Even when you're struggling, they know you're. They can see that difference. If yeah. You're just small talk and religious talk, mm. and there's no difference between you and the world. Yeah, yeah. That's good. This deception is so insidious um, on these issues. We can be deceived by others, and we can also be deceived by ourselves, thinking sometimes we're more righteous than we really are. But. Paul is saying, don't be fooled, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. If you start down the track of habitual sin, you're not changing your actions. You're changing sides. You're changing your very self, and you're becoming someone else. Your partners, he said, he goes on, your partners with, with the children of disobedience, meaning the sinners, right? Your partners with them, when you start to live a life and, and say, you know what, uh, Paul goes in Romans 6. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Right? By no means. This is one of my favorite verses. Because what I call that is cheap grace. I would say, well, God's, God's got me. You know? Like, I can, you know what, tomorrow, if I want to go do whatever I want to do, God's got me. He knows I believe in him. I believe there's a God. Believing and being imitators is completely different, right? And think this is, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, there's there's no like free pass to go and sin. Yeah. Brings up a good a good point. Uh, that I feel like yeah, it does. It does. Um, and there are things that you cannot be okay with, and still be in, and still be seeking help and repentance. Um, you know, and working out the salvation, right? Because when, when you believe in God, it's not always a like just a one eighty. Some people have, have great testimonies where they say they believe in God and they just left their sin right there and walked away. Now, it doesn't mean they never sinned again because we know that's not possible, right? When's the last, if you ever snapped at somebody today, that's a sin. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you could see on his face he was scared he was going to kill again. 
going to help them understand. And I think the because when you truly want, like um, the actor that just died um, from Friends, you know, they said mm -hmm. him into rehab like 15 times. Mm -hmm. He did not want to be where he is. But I think sometimes, and this is me, but I think people don't realize sometimes if there's a generational curse involved, or there's just demonic impression, you know, oppression involved, and people don't understand what chain breaking is, what deliverance is. Mm -hmm. You you can have the right thought, you can try with all your might, and you can't get out of that. Mm -hmm. You can't get out of that rut. And um, those are the people it breaks my heart. They truly do love God. Mm -hmm. They truly do want those things, but because they don't understand, well, the Bible says, "My people perish for lack of knowledge." And I think sometimes that lack of knowledge is. Yeah. And until they do and they understand the deliverance and chain breaking and mm -hmm. however else they want to word it in there, um, they they just struggle and and they deserve love. But my prayer is that they always find the person who can say, This is what it is and let's get it from them from you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think part of part of that is um, Paul Paul actually says in scripture, why do I sin? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Right? And and so there's an understanding there. But he also says in Romans 6 that should we go on sinning? And so there's this there's this tension, there's this battle. As believers, we should not go on sinning, that grace may abound. And so what I really want to hint at is as believers, we may be caught in a sin and maybe struggling to get out, and we're working on it. And we want to be more like God. And we're striving to be more like God. But when we start to say, you know what, God's got me, I've crossed the line. Because now I'm not trying to be an imitator of God. I'm just trying to live like the world lives. And so that's where Paul gets that tension of like, yeah, I do do things that I don't want to do. Why do I, you know, have this sin in my life? I'm trying to beat it. I'm trying to get past it. And he's working at it. And he's working at it, right? And we never know what, what Paul was actually dealing with there. There's tons of speculation. And there's speculation as to did he beat it or because he never talked about it again or, or what. But in that same, like not same breath, but, you know, a different book, he talks about that we can't just excuse it. You know, we can't just say, okay, you know what, I'm sinning. And I, and I struggle with sin, so I'm just going to keep on doing it. That's, that's not the mentality we should have. The mentality we should have is, I know I struggle with this sin. I need to break it. I need to get out, right? And so you turn. Um, this is why I think Christians, Catholics do something well. They also don't do it right. But the practice of confession is cool. And what I mean by that is the practice of confession, confessing to one another is scripturally based. The problem is the way they do it it's not right. Anyway, I'm not going to take that out the podcast. Nate. So uh, I don't want to, I don't, we're in by front neck. I don't want to get in trouble. So uh, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I live in front neck, so I can say that, right? Um, anyway, my point is this, that, that we are commanded to confess our sins to one another. And there's something healthy about that. Sin, when it's hidden, will stay hidden. And when it's hidden, will continue to grow. When it's exposed, oh, we're getting into that a little bit, I think. To the light, that's when change happens, you know. And so I love this. I love your comments. Thank you. Um, this stuff, anyway. I just I love reading scripture. So, um, okay, I'm gonna move on because sorry, 740. 
Who likes the Lord of the Rings? I'm going to talk shit. <laughs> Lord of the Rings fans. <laughs> Something a little bit less. Uh, Lord of the Rings. I, I love Tolkien. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge reader and, um, and a huge nerd. So Lord of the Rings. Who remembers that scene? There's a scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf and all of the, the hoodlums are running. I'm hoodlums. Uh, the hobbits and, and everybody. They're running across this bridge. <laughs> uh, it's a married group of friends, right? And they're running across this bridge. And there's this big old monster, well, orcs and everything are chasing them, and this big old monster, and the bridge like breaks, and the monster falls, and he, and he throws out his, his whip, he gets Gandalf's leg, he pulls him down, and uh, that's kind of how the, that scene goes. It's kind of a crazy scene. But basically, I, I'm, I'm saying that because there was nothing but darkness below as the monster fell down, but then the fiery whip curls up and drags him down, and Paul... In verse 7, I want to read it real quick. Don't participate in all the things people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. Paul's saying getting away from the edge. Right? That's, he's saying get away from the edge. Gandalf, after the, the monster falls, it's, I, movies crack me up. And I, obviously it was in the writing. And so it probably didn't look as like that in, in when Tolkien right? But he just stands there. For like 20 seconds, and he's like, oh. and then the whip comes up, it gets his leg, and it pulls him down. And I'm always like, if people just moved in movies, <laughs> we wouldn't ever have. And so, but Paul, he's telling us to get away from the edge. Don't flirt with sin. If you want out of the darkness, don't approach it. Craig Rochelle taught a, a sermon series on um, sin and how to, how to break sin. And one of the things he talked about was injecting something else into that moment. So you go home and you know that, that you're going to sin tonight. He would say, okay, if you know that you're going to go home and you're going to get on your computer and do something you're not supposed to, you need to find a different outlet. He's saying you have to in, inject something there, interject something there. You can't just go home and expect a different result. He said, so you have to, okay, you know that's you're tempted for something. Say, hey, you know what? Call a buddy and say, hey, can we hang out tonight? Or whatever it is, you have to. You can't just hope that you're going to beat the sin. And sin needs to be exposed to the light. And so, in today's time, I think Paul would tell us to resist things like porn, to get help, because he knows what's at stake for you. You know what's at stake for you, right? I know what's at stake for me when I dived into any sin. I know what's at stake. What's at stake is... I'm cutting myself off from the life giver. I'm, I'm, you know, I just, I don't feel as connected to Jesus when I'm in sin. And so it's important that you, that you break that, that you, and then it's important once you're broken that you don't flirt with the line. You know, my mom always used to tell me, I don't know, it was like a funny saying back in the day, but it was like four on the floor, right? That was the, the saying, if I ever sat by a girl anywhere, four on the floor. Like that, I don't know why, but that was just like, I don't even know, that doesn't make any sense, honestly, uh, because I'm not going to put my hands anyway. But all I have to say, like, there, was, there were things you would draw the line. Boundaries are so important. It's the same with sin. You draw lines and say, okay, I know I'm tempted to do this. If you're an alcoholic, you don't go back to the bar, right? You know, and so all I have to say, Paul is telling us to, to draw the line. To stay away from darkness. And then verse 8, he goes on. 
he says, uh, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light of the Lord. So live as people of light. Um, live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Verses 8 through 12 all go together. It's the passing from darkness to light. The ways in which you once lived to now being imitators of God. Um, it's Paul condemning the sin and then recognizing that it's the exact darkness that Christians emerge from. When we believe in God and, and God starts to work on our hearts and starts to transform us and change us, the darkness that once was is no longer. Like all of you right now could say, I used to struggle with this sin. No matter what, you know, at some point you could look back at your life and say, man, I used to struggle with that. I don't anymore by the grace of God. And that's beautiful. Like that's what it is to, to, to know God, to draw near to him for repentance to take place in your life. He doesn't just say that you once lived in darkness, but yet that, that we were darkness itself. When you're separated from God, you're darkness. There's, there's, no, there's no life in you. There's no Holy Spirit in you. And without God, there's no hope. You know, I, I don't remember too much what it was like to be a non-believer to a believer. Um, I was in high school when I felt like I really started to believe in God. But I know how selfish I was before I was a believer. I, I like, football was it for me. I was going to the NFL, like that was the thing. 5'8", going to the NFL, you know how it is. Uh, there's a couple of 5'8", Darren Sproles, so anyway. Um, you know, and that was my thing. Like it was self, selfish, selfish, selfish. All the time. You know, I would, I would miss my siblings' things. I had to go practice football, mom. I need to be in the yard practicing football. Like that, it was just all about me. Until I really found God. And I broke my neck. But um, that's just a side note. Like, you know, and... and but when you found God, when I found God, when um, I, my life started to be transformed, the sin that I once had, the darkness that I once lived in, started to, to shift away. That's who we're, we're, When we offer the gospel to people, we're offering a new way, new hope, new life. We're offering eternal life, eternally in the presence of the life giver something so beautiful about that so when we go out there we don't take this lightly we go out into the world and we give the good news to a world that that needs it so anyway okay where am i at here verse eight so paul um the child of light uh, the theme is repeated you have light so live as people of light basically you have the spirit so live like it if you have the Spirit of God in you, don't quench the Spirit. I think Pastor Anthony talked about that last week. Maybe quenching the Spirit. I mean, if you have the Spirit, don't quench it. Don't do things that are going to cut off the, like, you know, like disconnect you from, from that. But he says to live as children of light. He used it in 1 Thessalonians 5 5. He says, to be children of light is to live in the light, right? Which means to walk in the way of Jesus. That's to live in the light. In verse 9, it includes a parenthetical statement, like in Ephesians 4, 9 through 10. This is it's a side remark in the middle of another thought. It says, For the light within you produces only what is good, 
right and true. He kind of gets like this, this interjects this like little idea. Like he just had a light bulb go off. In this case, Paul inserts an additional explanation of what it means to walk as children of light. He says to only what is good, what is right and true. And what is true? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Basically, Paul's saying, live like Jesus. Once again, be imitators. Verse 10, um, he goes on and says this, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. And he goes on, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. There's two themes. Believers should be discerning. And a believer is to please the Lord. That's what happened. He says, carefully determine to discern. And then he says, what it is to please God, to please the Lord. We should aim to please God. Our ultimate aim is to please God. And we do that by drawing near to him and serving others, to love God and to love others. That's how we please the Lord. We carefully determine that. We discern that because one is given to us. And then verse 11, like I just read, there's also another two commandments here. It says to completely avoid participating in sin. That's a tough call, right? Like Paul's like, just avoid that stuff. Like it's the plague. Don't even touch it. Just avoid. He says, take no part. And look at the wording here. He says, in the worthless deed of evil. Worthless. There is nothing good about sin. Nothing. The enemy would have you think otherwise. You know what I mean? When the enemy says, oh, you know what? Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't do that? Then you participate and you feel instant gratification for a few seconds. And then when you're done and realize what you just did, you're like all torn up inside. I mean, in Old Testament, they used to like rip clothes and sackcloth and ashes. And it was just crazy when they realized what they had done. When Aaron goes, is Aaron, right? He goes to David and, and tells him of his sin. Is Aaron? Nathan. I was get those guys messed up. Uh, Nathan goes to David. This is why my wife is great. She keeps me in line with all the names. Uh, so, and Nathan goes to David, and, and, and David is distraught because he's like, who did all those things? And Nathan's talking about David. He says, well, you did. And David, like, just, I mean, just goes nuts because he realized what he did against God. It's the same verse. Paul is telling us, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. And then he says, instead, expose them. Completely avoid participating in sin. Paul's command implies that sin really is a waste of time. The second command, though, he says, it means to unmake or point out what is sinful. This is a powerful counter to being called judgmental, by the way. Christians are called, no, Christians are commanded to call out sin for the benefit in others. But I want you to hear me for a second. For the benefit in others. Our job is not to call out sin in someone else's life to point out how bad they are. But, just like Nathan did with David, it was for the benefit of David to call him out and say, you did this. It's a hard line, but I feel like Paul is telling us that to expose sin. Now, I shouldn't just go around looking to see who's sinning. But if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm living a life like this, 
point them to a better way. And, and if you have an accountability partner, you should, it's a, you have a good accountability partner if they hold you accountable. You do not have a good accountability partner when they say, oh, it's okay, you'll get it next time. You're not going to get it next time. Not with that partner. You need somebody right, to hold you accountable. It says to expose sin. The word benefit, I want you to notice that though, because it's, it's not to harm. Not with wrong motivation or wrong heart, but it's for their benefit. We as believers should look at other believers and want more for them. I want all of us in this room to be imitators of God. As Paul says to be imitators of God. It's not, I don't want to go call somebody out because I'm like, you're living in sin. No, I want the best for you. And the best is to draw near to God. That's the best. There's nothing better than drawing and being in his presence. So Paul, I'm going to keep going. Verse 12, because we are out of time. I don't know who, who talked all this time. Uh, verse 12, what do you think Paul's saying here? He says, it is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. Any thoughts? What do you think, what do you think he's saying here? Gossip. Yeah, gossip. Yeah, who, who gossiped today? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but really, right, believers can condemn certain sins without going into detail about them. That's really what he's saying. Don't be counterproductive. Right? You, if someone, for instance, if someone came and exposed their sin to me, I, I don't need to know all of the detail. What I need to know, like when they say, oh, you know, I, I struggle with this. I shouldn't be going and being like, well, okay, tell me more. Yeah, like you don't need to know everything. Don't be counterproductive. The little bit that you need to know is that they sinned and they told you what the sin was. You don't need the graphic. It's counterproductive, Paul is saying. And I wonder, because he talked about all the sexual sin, I wonder how much there was like people just describing, well, I did this. And he was saying, we don't need to do that. We know that what you like to some degree what you did. That's all we need to know. Now, walk in the light, right? And so I think that's part of where he's getting at and, and the gossip part. We shouldn't be gossipers. That happens all too often. Um, yeah. Second, believers can speak against sin without direct personal experience in the area. I want to point that out. I think Paul alludes to that. We can speak into someone else's life without having gone through that same sin. I think so often we think, well, we, if I haven't gone through that, I can't, I can't counsel you. I can't help you. I don't know how to help you because I haven't been through that sin. I don't think that's true. We can, we can listen because here, Jesus didn't go through any sin. And yet he was counseling people. He was now obviously it was Jesus. But the disciples probably wouldn't have gone through all the sins that they're talking about here either. But I think you can... Um, never tell yourself you can't speak in this situation just because you haven't gone through the sin. I don't think it's healthy to just say, oh, I, because here's what you're doing. You're, if someone's brave enough to come to you with the sin, and if you just tell them, oh, I can't help you with that because I've never dealt with it, they're not, they may not go to somebody else. You might have been there one chance to say, to pray over them, to hear them, to listen to them. So don't just write it off because you haven't been through it. All right, listen. 
take it in and, and help. And then maybe it is pointing, hey, you know what? I, I don't have all the resources for you. I want to pray with you while we're here, but I want to get you to somebody who does. Would you be okay with me telling you, uh, you know, giving you to somebody else that helped me get through this or what, you know, whatever that is. But don't just sit there and, and let them come to you and then just write them off. It happens, I think, a lot in Christianity. I just don't really know what you're going through. That's okay. So we have a couple more verses. 13. <clears throat> but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you the light. So verse 13, Paul refers to the light to communicate a spiritual principle. Believers are to expose sin. We talked about this a little bit. Sin needs to be exposed. Here's why. Sin has to be exposed in order to be defeated. It has to be exposed in order to be defeated. If you stay at home and you're dealing with the sin, how hard it is to combat that sin without the help of others. Yes, you need the help of Jesus and the grace of God. But I know I've walked through some seasons in life that if it wasn't for some other believers surrounding me, I would probably still be stuck in that sin. That's how important it is. That's why community is so important. When people say, I don't want to go to church because I, you know, I can do a church in my house. I'm like, no, you can't. You need other believers. You need a life group. You need Bible study. You just need to be surrounded by other believers to get through and defeat sin. And we need our sin exposed. It's true. I, I need it exposed. Every night we listen to this um, was it devotion. Uh, Lectio 365. Pastor Tom got us onto it. And it is so beautiful. It's like 10 minutes. I got this peaceful music behind them. The people are from like, I don't know, Scotland or something. They got these beautiful accents. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and so they're just talking and they're reading scripture. Um, and one of the things it says um, in, in the devotion is, uh, Lord, just help me. What was it you said the other day? Putting you on the spot. Lord, help me see what I've done wrong today. Or, you know, the, Show me any areas that you showed up and spoke to me in any areas where I've sinned against you. And it's just beautiful. Like, we should pray that prayer every night. Show me any area that I have sinned against you. And show me any area where you've shown up. Because God does show up every day. Every day in your life. But I really love that other one. To, to expose sin. To pray to God. Show me any area that I have sinned against you. And he will. Right? And God's not going to sit there and just let you do whatever you want. So, and then verse... 14. Um, any, anybody know where Paul got this quote? Awake, O sleeper. Rise up. Anybody have a guess? Isaiah. Yeah, right. That's what, yeah. That was my first guess, too. Yeah, no, it, it actually would have been a it was most likely, from what theologians can understand, that it was actually a worship chorus from the early church. So we talk, we do the song now, What I See, uh, Wake Up Sleeper. It's not original, right? The church would have been doing it a long time ago. But it was most likely a worship chorus from the early church. And this implies that when we turn from our sins to the Lord, Christ brings us to life. Uh, this is what the verse implies. And shines on us, again connecting with the theme of light. 
So Ephesians 5, at least the first half, is like all about living in the light, being imitators of God. As soon as you become aware that you are asleep, it's evident that you are now awake. So when you become aware of your sin, it's evident now that you can get out of it. When you become aware, oh, I said that right here. Um, the reality that it's not good and you want to get rid of it. That's what happens. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead. Recognize your sin and the Christ will give you light because he is light. So this is Ephesians, the first half of Ephesians 5. Um, it's a powerful book, I think, just reminding us who we are to be in Christ, that you are who you are in Christ. Um, it's a great reminder, I think, for Christians today, um, and it's a great reminder for the rest of the world, too. Um, but, yeah, any questions? Yeah? Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, even when uh, you're loving the Lord and stuff, and to love people, and can you, uh, should, or should you let them be in your house overnight? You can share the love on the outside, but do you think you should uh, bring them indoors? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I just want to point out one thing. Men, men should only disciple men. Women should only disciple women. Uh, there's, a, there's a big reason for that, right? Um, we should never try to cross-disciple, and I say that because, yeah, it's... I think that's scripturally based, and I think part of it is it keeps us out of trouble. Um, two, um, I probably wouldn't necessarily just have anybody come over and, and disciple them and have them spend the night. Now, I, I think it, you know if, if they're a friend or if God's asked you to disciple somebody, then that may be a little different. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that's situation by situation. Um, so... There's not really probably a one clear answer for that. Any other questions? Yeah, I got one. Yeah. It's a weird one. <laughs> I expect so, nothing less, Sergio. <laughs> so there's multiple times in Scripture that they talk about being saved. Like in, at the end of 4, it's mm-hmm. just guaranteeing that you would be saved. Mm. And then later on, just a few verses later in 5, he talks about inheriting the kingdom of God. Mm, yeah. Do we think there's different levels of being being saved? saved? I don't think so. Um, just yeah, I think it's just different language. Um, you know, it's funny to bring that up though. There are some sects like of, of Christianity that believe that there are actually different levels of heaven. Yeah. Um, that depending on how good you are, and you have to belong to them, obviously, too. You get, like, the inner ring of heaven. That's just, I just don't feel like that's ever put anywhere in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just always wonder why they use, I mean, that's close, too. Why do you say, guaranteeing you're saved, and then these people are not inheriting the kingdom of God? Yeah. But they're guaranteeing that they'll be saved. Yeah, which, which verse are you reading? On four or five. At the end of 4, it is uh, verse 30. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. And then 5, we just talked about it being the, uh, the greed and all that. Oh, yeah, okay. I don't know. 4 is off. 
Yeah, and I think part of it too is he's talking about uh, that the seal is the spirit, right? When the spirit's put on us, then yeah, we are kept for the day of redemption. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, uh, which also gets us into one saved, always saved, we're not going to talk about that.